Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, August 19th. In for Leslie Palma, I'm Anthony Vassone. And I'm Teresa Watson. Tonight I'll be talking about Liz Cheney being ousted in the Republican primary. And stay tuned for this week's moral outrage from the left concerning a Florida teenager whom a judge has ruled is not mature enough to have an abortion. We'll also have a lot of other abortion news you won't want to miss. I will be sharing all of the primary results that occurred this week in political news in a nutshell. Also, a special segment on euthanasia, not a peaceful exit. Be sure to stay till the end to hear about a baby boy rescued from a trash can. Representative Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, a one-time House GOP leader, and a daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, was ousted in a Republican primary Tuesday night. Former President Donald Trump's name wasn't on the ballot, but his shadow eclipsed the contest as he sought revenge for Cheney's vote last year to impeach him and her work on the committee investigating his behavior leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. His hand-picked challenger, Harriet Hegman, defeated Cheney in a multi-candidate race. With 80% of the vote counted before midnight, Hegman was leading Cheney by more than 32 points. But the result didn't put an end to hostilities between Trump and Cheney. Instead, she vowed to escalate them. This primary election is over, Cheney told her supporters, drawing a clear contrast between her acceptance of the outcome and Trump's ongoing refusal to admit he lost the 2020 election. But now the real work begins. Harriet Hageman is a conservative Republican who believes in protecting our Constitution, stands up for election integrity, and demands transparency in government. Here is part of Harriet Hageman's victory speech. takes a strong stance on protecting the unborn. She states on her campaign website that the most basic fundamental right we all hold is the right to life. 
Since the beginning of the coronavirus lockdowns, we've been hearing an ongoing mantra from the left that we must trust the science. The Democrats publicly expressed belief in science has limits. We need to look no further than the fact that a unique human life is formed at the moment of conception, a human life with its own genetic code and individual existence. Babies have a heartbeat within six weeks of gestation. They can feel pain, they have dreams when they sleep, and they are every bit as human before they are born as they are after. There is no justification for refusing to protect these precious lives, and I will strongly support laws that seek to ensure their safety. Abortion will one day be remembered as a grave stain on American history. Until then, we will never stop advocating for the most vulnerable among us. Harriet Hegman will be running against Democrat Lynette Graybull in the November 8th general election. Graybull is unapologetically pro-abortion and believes in a federal right to abortion. If you are from Wyoming, please be sure to get out and vote on November 8th. This week's moral outrage from the left concerns a Florida teenager whom a judge has ruled is not mature enough to have an abortion. The 16-year-old has no parents and is in the care of Florida's Child Welfare Agency. She has a legal guardian but chose to go the judicial bypass route to abort her child. Two courts, a county circuit court and a state district court of appeals, have found her to be insufficiently mature to make a life and death decision with repercussions for the rest of her life. As many pro-lifers have pointed out, there's a lot of missing information from this story. It's being reported that the Guardian supports the teen's wishes, which would make it unnecessary to obtain a judicial bypass. It's not known why she chose to go to the court. The age of the father is also not being reported, even though it's possible the girl's baby was conceived as a result of statutory rape. The physical and emotional damage suffered by many women after abortion are being cited by pro-lifers who defend the position of the two courts and suggest that the teen should consider making an adoption plan for the child. The Idaho Supreme Court this week cleared the way for a near total ban on abortion in the state to be enacted on August 25th. The court also lifted a stay on a separate law that allows relatives of an unborn child to sue a provider who performs an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. That law becomes effective immediately. The decisions were in response to a challenge to the law filed by Planned Parenthood. Separately, the Biden administration is suing to block the law on grounds that it violates a federal law mandating life-saving treatment to a pregnant woman whose life is at risk. Idaho officials note the law already has exceptions for the life of the mother. The case will be heard on Monday in federal court in Boise. The South Carolina State Supreme Court on Wednesday temporarily blocked the state's heartbeat law, which had been in effect since shortly after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Abortion providers challenged the ban, arguing the law violates the South Carolina Constitution's right to privacy and its guarantees of equal protection and due process. The ban, which has exceptions in cases of medical emergency, makes abortions illegal in the state when a heartbeat can be detected, usually around six weeks. 
Attorneys General from 20 states and the District of Columbia filed a brief in federal court on Tuesday challenging Texas's assertion that states shouldn't have to comply with a federal law that protects doctors who end a pregnancy to save the patient's life. Texas is seeking a preliminary injunction to block the federal government from enforcing the law. The issue arose in July when Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra released a letter reasserting that under the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, women have the right to emergency care, including abortion, no matter where they live. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration a few days later. The brief filed by the attorneys general is the latest salvo in the legal battle. The last three abortion businesses in Louisiana are relocating to other states after the state Supreme Court upheld a near total ban on abortion last week. The state's three abortion sellers have closed up shop and they reopened repeatedly since the state's trigger law, trigger law went into effect following the overturning of Roe v. Wade in June as courts have upheld and blocked the law. Currently in Louisiana, abortion is banned except when the life of the mother is threatened or if the life of the unborn child is deemed medically futile. The city of Philadelphia will give $500,000 in taxpayer funding to the Abortion Liberation Fund of Pennsylvania to help low-income women abort their children. In response, pro-life residents of the city of brotherly love are suing the mayor, the city controller, and the treasurer to stop the transfer of city funds calling the move politically motivated and a violation of Pennsylvania law. And now we turn to political news. Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin is the most notable name on Alaska's ballot to finish the rest of the late Representative Don Young's term, though her path to Congress is not guaranteed. And the outcome of the race may not be known for a couple of weeks. Alaska is using ranked choice voting for the first time. It enables voters to choose multiple candidates on the ballot and rank them in order of preference. Unless a candidate receives over 50% of the first choice vote, the candidate with the fewest first choice votes will be eliminated and voters' second choices will be reallocated to the remaining candidates. This process of elimination and redistribution continues until a candidate wins a majority and may be delayed until absentee ballots are counted. Those ballots can be received until August 26th, 10 days after Election Day. Palin, a Republican businessman Nick Begich, and Democrat Mary Peltota are on the special election ballot for Young's seat. In a statement, as polls were closing in Alaska Tuesday, Palin bashed ranked choice voting, saying, today is the first test case of the crazy, convoluted, undesirable ranked choice voting system. And to everyone who's watching from outside tonight, I say, please learn from Alaska's mistakes. Voters are confused and angry and feel disenfranchised by this cockamamie system that makes it impossible to trust that your vote will even be counted the way you intended. She continued, we'll keep fighting to equip Alaskans with the information they need to make sure their voices are heard amidst this leftist crafted system, no matter how hard the correct political establishment works to silence us. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds 
asked the state's courts on Thursday to allow her to implement a law banning most abortions that a judge permanently blocked in 2019. Reynolds previously said she would turn to the courts instead of calling a special session to hold a divisive abortion debate and vote just months before she and several other Republican leaders run for re-election. The court filing is just the first step in a legal battle that could take months to resolve and end up before the Iowa Supreme Court again. Reynolds' lawyers argue that since the U.S. Supreme Court and the Iowa Supreme Court have now removed broad constitutional protections for abortion rights, the previous order should be removed and the law enforced. The historic U.S. Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe has given us a new hope and pathway forward to challenge the Iowa court's previous decision, Reynolds said in a statement. Life and death are determined by a person's heartbeat, and I believe that includes our unborn children. The NBA will be off on Election Day. The league schedule for the coming season will have all 30 teams playing on November 7th, the night before the midterm elections. The NBA is hoping teams will use that night as an opportunity to encourage fans to get out and vote, plus amplify the need for civic engagement. But on November 8th, which is Election Day, no NBA teams have games scheduled. Teams are being encouraged to share election information, such as registration deadlines, with their fan bases in the weeks leading up to November 8th. The scheduling decision came out of the NBA family's focus on promoting nonpartisan civic engagement and encouraging fans to make a plan to vote during midterm elections, the league said on Tuesday. All 435 U.S. House seats will be up for grabs on November 8th, along with more than 30 U.S. Senate seats and gubernatorial races. It's unusual. We don't usually change the schedule for an external event James Cottigan, the executive director of the NBA's Social Justice Coalition, told NBC, which first reported the league's Election Day schedule plan. But voting and Election Day are obviously unique and incredibly important to our democracy. And that's political news in a nutshell. The 2021 California Assisted Suicide Report indicates that there were 486 reported assisted suicide deaths and 772 lethal cocktail prescriptions written. That leaves 286 prescriptions unaccounted for and many questions unanswered. Were the deaths not recorded? Did the people change their minds? Canada legalized euthanasia in 2016, calling the deadly practice medical assistance in dying. It enjoys the full support of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's federal government. More than 31,000 people have been legally killed by euthanasia since 2016 for reasons including living with a disability, mental illness, and poverty. Are these valid reasons to seek assisted suicide? Is there really ever a valid reason? The assisted suicide lobby has developed new lethal drug cocktails to lower the cost of the procedure. These drug cocktails have terrible side effects that cause excruciating pain and suffering. Here with us tonight is Alex Schadenberg, Executive Director of Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, who will help us unravel these and other concerns pertaining to assisted suicide. Welcome, Alex. Hey, it's great being with you. Yes, uh, on a sad topic, but a great, great to be with you. <clears throat> Alex. 
Can you help us understand why there is a discrepancy in the number of cocktail prescriptions written and the actual number of deaths? Okay, so the California assisted suicide data actually proves that there's unreported assisted suicide deaths. So what you have is they said there was 486 reported assisted suicide deaths. There was 130 people, though, who changed their mind. So that's where, so they received the lethal drugs. Either they changed their mind or they died a natural death and never had a chance to die by assisted suicide. But there was still this 194 number that they have no idea how they died. They, they know they died. They just don't know if it was assisted suicide or natural death or what it was. They have no data. So what it shows you is the system is designed very well to cover up how it works. And I'll give you a quick information on how this works. The assisted suicide law in California or Oregon or Washington State, they all work the same way. The doctor who approves your assisted suicide is the same doctor who then writes the prescription, is the same doctor who sends in the report. And some of these doctors never bother sending in a report. So therefore, you just don't know what happened in those cases. Uh, so this is what's going on. You have So I can't tell you how many actual assisted suicides happened in California. And I can't tell you how many of those 194 that are unaccounted for actually died by assisted suicide because we simply have no data about them. We just know they received lethal drugs. They died. We don't know how they died. And this is the kind of thing you have going on in uh, also in Oregon and Washington State in their data also. Very similar to the Netherlands in their euthanasia data, which shows about, uh, in the Netherlands, about 20% are unreported. So. Alex, there appears to be requests for assisted suicide in cases that are not really fatal illnesses. That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, first of all, assisted suicide laws in the U.S., except for New Mexico, state that you must be within six months of death. But, you know, that's very hard to define. So that's the first point. But the second point is it doesn't actually mean you're within six months of death. What it means is that if you were to say no to medical treatment, you would be within six months of death. So there's quite a few medical conditions that you could have that if you said no to medical treatment, you could... Uh, you, you would be dead within six months, but if you were accepting, such as um, if you were diabetic and you were insulin dependent, you could qualify for assisted suicide or you could accept, you know, treatment for your diabetes. Otherwise, you would live or die. You know how it works? Now, in Canada, things are different because in Canada, there is no requirement that a person be terminally ill at all. And that's why we're having quite a few deaths with people who are, you know, who are simply poor, people with disabilities who can't afford to live. And they're saying, my only way out is death. And this is very sad where it's gone in Canada. Um, I want to say one other thing first, too. When we're talking about problems with assisted suicide, remember, we're opposed to assisted suicide because it's about killing. The problems are just a reality in the culture of death. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Alex, is there ever really a, a valid reason to request assisted suicide? Well, they would talk about uh, pain and symptom management issues and things like that. And you look at the Oregon data, and every year they publish the data showing why people had asked for assisted suicide. And uh, the number uh, for people who are actually asked for based on pain and symptom issues is very tiny. You know, it's like 20% or something like that, or in that range, 20 to 30% at most. And those cases, you know, you could properly care for them if you actually wanted to, like if the medical system actually was really focused on making sure that the pain and the symptom management was taken care of. Most of the cases, it's because people feel that they're a burden on others. They feel that their life has lost meaning, purpose, or value. These are different issues. These are more social issues, not issues around pain and symptoms. But is there ever a good reason to be involved with killing somebody? And the answer to that is no. 
No. Caring for people, we should be doing that all the time. Killing people, no, we should not be doing that ever. Well, we certainly agree uh, here, Alex. But from what I've read also, these drug cocktails do not really result in a peaceful death, as, as people think. Can you give us some details about that? Yeah, and you mentioned that in the introduction. So it was uh, it's less than 10 years ago, the, the assisted suicide lobby decided they needed a cheaper way to kill. So what they did is they started meeting and they came up with these drug cocktail mixtures, which they knew would likely kill you, but they weren't sure how uh, you know effective they would be. So you see now in the data that quite a few of the deaths take a very, very, very long time. You have this symptom of the drug cocktail they use that of the burning of the throat. So how assisted suicide works is that the doctor, he's prescribing, or she, they're describing a, uh, a drug cocktail. And this cocktail is a mixture of drugs to do several things. But one of the things it does is it's, uh, you know, as they say, the drug they're using is pretty effective at killing, but, you know, you're going to have a qu quite a bit of pain before you die. Uh, and the deaths take a long time, but they also put in the, in the drug cocktail this sort of a, um, to make you go to sleep, you know, to put you into a coma. So the mixture, the one drug puts you into a coma, the other one shuts down your lungs. That's the other thing you need to know. They talk about the drugs as shutting down your heart. It's a lie. And actually, they're being more honest about it lately. They admit in the recent book they're admitting, what it actually does is shuts down your lungs. So actually, how you die by assisted suicide is a death by drowning because the fluid in your lungs build up fairly quick with these drugs that you take, and you would die by drowning. That's how it actually happens. But they would say, yes, but these people don't notice it because they're in coma. So what you've done is you've masked the horrible death, but you still burn their throats as they were dying. Wow. It's, it's the reality of it. Remember, we're talking pretty horrific drugs. These are not drugs that you would you know, want to take for any reason, uh, but they're using them to kill you. Alex, can you maybe offer some talking points uh, for our viewers that they could use when talking to supporters of assisted suicide? Right. Well, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of people who support assisted suicide because they have fear of a bad death and they have fear of being in significant pain and symptoms. And, you know, we're all human, so we all can understand that point of view, even though we don't agree with killing. We can understand someone's fear. But, you know, to kill someone over their fear that we can deal with property by caring for them is is really the, the right answer. But let's get down to the, the bottom line here. You know, we believe in caring for people, not killing them. But we also believe in t telling people what it is. So the assisted suicide lobby has got us using all this new language. We call it aid in dying, you know, medical aid in dying, assisted death. All that we come up with all these different terms, not we, but the assisted suicide lobby, to make everybody feel good about killing. Well, the fact is we have to call it what it is, you know. And it's never a good idea to have doctors involved or nurses involved with killing people. Because really, what, this is what the law has done. It's given a lot of power to doctors and nurses over life and death. They have the power to kill you. That's what they have. And this is never a good idea. But the fact is, we should call it what it is. This is about giving people lethal drugs at, the, at a time of their life when they're going through a lot of emotional, psychological issues related to the fact that they're dealing with you know, a significant health condition, whether they're dying or nearing death or not. This is, this is not about caring. It is about abandonment, though. It, I call it medical abandonment because you're not actually doing what we need to do. We have to provide care for people so they can have a good death. That's truly a death with dignity, not about killing people. Well, thank you, Alex. Um, we really do appreciate your insights and for taking the time to join us tonight. 
there's so much more information on this. And uh, if you would like more information on assisted suicide, please visit Euthanasia Prevention Coalition at epcc.ca. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you. A Texas University student who rescued a baby boy from a trash can, naked and covered in ant bites, has received an outpouring of international support as he seeks to adopt the child, according to Life News. Jimmy Amsiel, 27, a communications and electronic media student at Texas State University, found the child five years ago while visiting his family in Haiti. Sky News interviewed Jimmy about the day he found the baby. Hello and welcome back. An incredible story now. A man called Jimmy Amisiel was on holiday in his hometown in Haiti when his life changed forever. While he was on his way to visit a Norfolk that he regularly volunteered at, he came across a large group of people who were huddled around a dustbin. That's when he found a baby in the bin. Now, Jimmy took it upon himself to take that baby home with him. And Jimmy, I'm pleased to say, joins us now live. Jimmy, just incredible that you decided to do this. Thanks so much for being with us. Just tell us, expand on that story that I just told. How did you come to meet uh, Emilio? Uh, first of all, I want to say uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for giving me this uh, golden opportunity to share my story. And it's a pleasure to be here. Um, on 2017, uh, I went back to Haiti uh, to give back to the community and also to see my family. Uh, on New Year's Eve, uh, I was uh, on my way to the orphanage to be having a party uh, for the kids uh, that evening. I heard a commotion. I heard people making a noise and I thought they were just having fun because it was going to be the new year. Um, I saw a lady, I saw a lady, a panicked lady, and I said, what's going on over there? And she was like, oh, they left uh, a baby abandoned in the trash over there. And when she told me that, and I was shocked and I couldn't believe it. I was being prone to curiosity and I'm like, I need to see what was going on. And when I got a closer look, uh, I saw a baby lying on the pile of trash and there were about 15 to 20 people that were just staring at the baby. Um, it was so sad to see. And um, all, all they were saying were, oh, I'm not gonna touch the baby. The baby is cursed. Uh, if I touch the baby, something was gonna happen to me or something like that. And um, to me, uh, they were seeing a cursed baby, but me, I saw a precious living soul. Um, when I tried to pick up the baby and people were like, no, don't do it, Jimmy. It's like you're out of your mind. And at the moment, it's like something told me that you're gonna rescue that baby. And he was crying. I could feel the excruciating pain that he was feeling at that moment. And to me, he was crying in his voice like we hear him saying, save me, save me, save me, do something for me. Amsiel and his mother, Elisi, who still lives in Haiti, later became guardians of the boy, Emilio Angel Jeremiah, and they are raising money to adopt him. This summer, news outlets across the world highlighted the family's story, their ongoing financial struggles, and their commitment to raising and adopting Emilio. When I was asked to raise him, I stayed awake for days tossing and turning, trying to make a decision, Amisiel said. I was already behind on my university fees, and my family has always struggled to make ends meet. But I didn't have a dad growing up, 
and this poor child was facing a lifetime of instability and uncertainty. This week, the Houston Chronicle reported that more than 1,000 people have donated to the Families Adoption Fund, which currently has more than $70,000. Amisiel said they need about $60,000 for the adoption, and the rest will be used for his and Emilio's education. I would like for me to be able to show him love and be financially stable, finish school and be able to take care of him and show him how to be great, show him love, how to be kind to people, said Emicio. He said Emilio enjoys playing soccer and basketball and is very talkative. The two video chat a couple of times a week. Because of the political unrest and violence in Haiti, Amicio said he has not been able to return to the country, and he worries for Emilio's and his mother's safety. He is so fun to be around, Amicio said. I really miss him, and I can't wait to see him. Whenever I get the chance to go back, I will. In the meantime, Amicio works, attends college, and sends money home regularly to support his mother and Emilio. The world can connect through love or kindness, he said. I've never thought I did something that could connect the world like that. That's right, Emisil. The world can connect through love and kindness. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priests for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will join us every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. If you have an idea for a story or would like to expose something in the abortion industry, please email us at media at priestforlife.org. We hope that you will support this show and all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet, Oceans of Mercy, Pro-Life is the New Punk Rock, and Primetime Live with Father Frank by making a donation to prolifegift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life. And a special thank you to Leslie Palmer, who couldn't join us this evening but worked alongside us researching the news we brought you tonight. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. And I'm Anthony Vassone, Resource Associate. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.